righty. Icon, good morning. If you will, remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading today comes out of Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the joy that is in this Advent season and even the, the time just sooner in our service to be able to express that with our bodies and to be able to, to say with our hands as well with our mouths that we love you, God, and we want to sing and demonstrate your praise. And so now, as we turn to your word and as we look at the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, I ask that your spirit would help us to see the wonder that is here and that we would feel the sense of glory that these angels felt as well. Where any of us are dull and asleep in our spiritual life, would your spirit shake us awake with the glory that you demonstrate in Jesus Christ, of who you are, worthy of all praise and worthy, certainly, of rejoicing. So would you, would you help us in that, and as I preach, God, would you unite your power with my weak words and cause our hearts to see glory together as we explore this passage. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I, I have two kids, and neither of them came to us in the way that we expected. So uh, actually, my daughter turns four uh, this Tuesday, which is super exciting. We had a birthday party last night where the kids like danced, and we had a disco ball down in our basement, and uh, it was called Club Marge, and it was, it was the place to be in Seattle last night. And, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, so, so four years ago, she was born, and, um, and four years ago today, my wife and I and my mother-in-law and my parents were, were waiting for the birth of this child who was supposed to be due December 6th of 2017. Uh, and we went through this process for nearly a week and a half of, 
of feeling like, like things were happening, like, oh, you know, contractions are happening, the baby's coming. And, and it happened for a week and a half where uh, that things would calm back down and then we'd have to wait another day. And it took a, a week and a half until finally Margot arrived and, um, and we got to welcome her into the world. And, and uh, in a different way, my, my son, who was born uh, September of last year, uh, surprised us in the way that he came as well. You see, we, we moved up to Seattle in uh, July of 2020. Um, which means we had no family here, and we had to really plan our time uh, to, to, to fly our family up here. We had to have it really precise, uh, and we, we felt like, you know, okay, Margot was, was late, and so surely Milo will, will at least be on time, maybe a little bit late. Um, and then one night, September 14th, well, I guess it was the 13th at that time, um, I, I was, I was uh, watching TV on the couch late at night, uh, Courtney and I got like a tiny little argument, and I was like pouting on the couch, you know? You know how husbands do, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, Courtney comes running out of the bedroom. Uh, I think Milo's here. And I was like, what? It's, it's a week and a half early. He was not supposed to come until the 19th, and all of my family is down in Texas, and her mom is in New Mexico, and, and we don't know what to do. And so we, we get kind of thrown into this chaos. And, and long story short, having to find someone to watch our daughter, I didn't walk into that room until the moment that baby was coming out. It was like divine timing. <laughs> Um, it, it was a miracle, really. But, but both of these kids did not come in the way that, that we expected. We all have, when, when, when we have a baby or when we're pregnant, we have great expectations for what it's going to be like to have that baby, right? Like, we're so excited. People put together birth plans, and, and people engineer birth announcements on Instagram, right? That's, that's like a critical part of what it means to announce your baby. Like, it's got to be on Instagram or else the baby hasn't really been born yet, right? And we craft the whole thing. You can actually Google birth announcements and you'll get ideas and creative scripts on how to announce a, a boy or a girl or, or even twins. We, we put a lot of effort into, into manufacturing our announcement in order to announce our joy. We want people to see it. We want people to join with us in the joy that we have with this new baby. But this is where our Instagrammable birth moments and the birth announcement of Jesus goes in two separate ways. We we tailor our announcement in order to show off just how much joy exudes out of us once we finally have that baby. But I, I wonder if you notice this as we read the text. The birth of Jesus happens within complete obscurity. Within complete obscurity. Just, just before this chapter, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is born. And for him, Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents, are, are there at the temple, and they're, they, they're there to announce the birth of this son that they didn't think they could have. And, and they're at the center of the city, and there's all these people gathered around in the temple, which is the center of Jewish life, in order to hear the announcement of this son, John the Baptist. Everything about John's birth signifies greatness and importance. He's announced at the city center, in the middle of the temple, in the middle of Jewish life. But then comes Jesus. Look at the verses with me of 1 through 7 in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Do you you notice something there? The name of Jesus or, or the title of Messiah or even the mention of a promised child is nowhere to be found in those verses. Rather, Mary is simply with child. When she finally gives birth, it simply notes that this baby was her her firstborn son, who they wrapped in cloths and and laid him in a manger. The first place this baby will lay its head is is not in a palace, not in a temple, but not even in a house or an inn, but instead, this unnamed, so far, unnoticed baby lays his head next to feeding animals, just cushioned by hay that they stack together in a manger. Everything, if you took one through seven, everything about this baby screams obscurity, screams unimportance, irrelevance even. The world is going on about its business without giving any notice to this child who has been born. And then after this obscurity, there's the shift, right? In that same region, there are some shepherds doing their jobs. uh, It's nighttime, and they're simply watching over some sheep and and no doubt have their attention fixed on any danger that might come and harm the sheep when suddenly their attention is interrupted. The shepherds are, are overtaken by the sight of an angel that has lit up the night sky. The shift happens. And think, think about this with me for a moment. The birth of John the Baptist is at the city center. It's in the downtown hubs of power and attention. But, but it's the obscurity of Jesus in a rural anonymity that draws the attention of the angel. With such a contrast of attention and importance in the text, it should lead us to ask this question, why? Why was Jesus born into such obscurity? The the lack of thrill or the lack of attention given to Jesus' birth should actually cause us to to go a little bit deeper and and pay attention. And, And here's one reason I think the birth of Jesus in this text happens within such obscurity. The way Jesus came into the world demonstrates who he came into the world for. The way Jesus comes into this world through obscurity, through seeming irrelevance, is meant to demonstrate who he is coming into the world for. You see, we, we always approach different situations and are driven by whatever our, our purpose is in that situation. So like when, when, I, was, when I was single, I, uh, I was always like, I, was all, I always had my head on a swivel, right? Like who's, who's going to be the woman, you know? And I always showed up to every gathering, every party, every, everything, thinking I've got to put on my best show because who knows, maybe, maybe some eligible bachelorette will, will find me attractive and, and marry me, maybe. <laughs> I tricked one of them. That's all it takes. Love you, babe. What we want out of a, a given situation uh, really drives how we show up. 
And the way Jesus shows up here demonstrates who he's showing up for. Jesus shows up in, in obscurity, in irrelevance, in unimportance, because he is demonstrating that from the outset, he has come for those we would not expect. Jesus didn't show up in the halls of, of power or in proximity to the cultural influencers. Instead, he shows up in rural anonymity, and all of this shows that he's not come to this world in order to win over the powerful or to rally them onto his cause. Instead, he has come to rescue and save the lowly, the cast out, the despised. And we explored this a, a couple weeks ago in, in Mary's song, but it's, it's worth highlighting again here. All throughout Scripture you will find that God has a bleeding heart for the least, the last, and the lost. God has a bleeding heart for the lowly. His concern is with those who know that they need him. That's where his attention is drawn. And we see this even in the ones to whom the birth of Jesus is announced. Shepherds, right? Now, 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 shepherds in our, our cultural imagination of the nativity scene has been really romanticized. We, we think of these shepherds as, as cozy figures who show up at the birth of Jesus, and, and we just kind of, we, we miss what's actually going on here. Shepherds are dirty. Let, let's say it stronger. Shepherds are disgusting, and they were treated as such by the wider society. They, they lived lives in isolation because often people wanted them to. They reeked of livestock and lived on the fringes of society. And while living on the fringes of society, they often were associated with living lives that you could live without anyone watching. <laughs> they were known to be drunkards, violent, pretty much anything rotten that society would frown upon. And to them, to them first, the announcement of Christ comes. Jesus is born into obscurity, and his announcement is not to kings. Caesar and the rulers of this world are not given any notice. They are given the silent treatment. But angels announce to these despised people of society that the Christ has been born. The message of Jesus and his life starts at the bottom of society because it's the humble he has come for. He has come in a lowly manner in order to show each and every one of us that he has come for those who are lowly. Which bears us to, to ask this question of ourselves. Are we humble enough to receive this humble Savior? Are we lowly enough to receive this lowly Christ? In, in the Old Testament, there's a story of a man named Naaman. And Naaman is a commander in the army of Syria, and uh, it's a powerful empire at that time. So he's existing at the upper echelons of society. He's one of the influencers, one of the power brokers of that culture. But Naaman has a problem. Naaman is a diseased leper, 
And he is treated as such, even as a powerful man. But he hears, if you go back and read this in 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles, he hears that, that there's this prophet in Israel who's actually able to, to heal people. And so he, he, uh, he wants to get rid of this leprosy. And so he searches out this prophet named Elisha. And he goes to Elisha's household with, with horses and chariots, is what the text says, showing up with his power and basically says, hey, Elisha, c- come out here and, and heal me. And what does Elisha do? He, si- he doesn't go out. He sends a messenger and just says, hey, if you want to be healed, go wash yourself seven times in the river Jordan. And Naaman is enraged. He thinks, who, who is this Elisha who doesn't even come out to meet me? Does, does he know who I am? And he gives me this simple solution of going to wash in the River Jordan. Does, what, what is this? And he gets enraged and eventually leaves, but uh, comes to his senses and actually goes to the River Jordan, like the prophet says, and is washed and comes out with smooth, healed skin. Naaman almost missed out on his opportunity for healing, simply because he was too powerful to receive the solution of humility. He had a sense of self-importance, and it almost cost him his miracle. I wonder if that's any of us today. To approach this humble Savior, you have got to leave behind every badge of honor. If you want to come to the lowly Christ, you cannot come in pride. You cannot come with a sense of honor in yourself. You cannot approach the humble Christ with the spirit of self-importance or self-sufficiency. You do not condescend to him. He does to you. (laughs) And he comes down in humility so that to approach him for anything requires our own personal Lowliness. Are you humble enough to receive this humble Christ? Next. The attention of the angels is drawn to this obscurity, right? And when they show up to the shepherds, if you look in the text, it says that the glory of the Lord shines around them. And understandably, the shepherds are terrified, right? It's the dead of night. And it's just been lit up with the glory of God. The, the light is, is piercing and it is blinding. But while the shepherds are, are sitting there trembling, probably in the, in the fetal position, the angels tell them to not be afraid, which in my mind just feels like it would be impossible to not be afraid in that situation. The nice guy has been lit up with the glory of God and in front of these shepherds is an angel. And remember, the image of a biblical angel is not a lot like our cultural imagination of an angel. It's not, it's not white robes garnished by a set of wings. It looks like something more out of Stranger Things, usually with, with multiple eyes, multiple heads, multiple extremities. It would be a terrifying sight. It would make the most sense for these shepherds to run in fear. But the angel says not to be afraid because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The the, the angel calms these shepherds down 
by communicating his message. There is a savior who has been born to you this day. Don't be afraid. Now, this, this message of the angels is special in its language. Earlier in the text, we, we saw that at this time, the, the ruler of the Roman Empire is Caesar Augustus. And uh, like most Caesars in Roman history, Augustus thought pretty highly of himself. And in fact, one of the frequent designations of Caesar Augustus that, that people would ascribe to him was, the, was this sentence, Caesar Augustus, divine savior who brought peace to the world. Here the angels take that sentence and and ascribe it to the right person. The the shepherds no doubt knew of this designation that Caesar had given himself. And here, they hear from the angels that there is now a rightful owner of that title and designation. And that would be good news for these shepherds. The, The peace that Caesar accomplished was not a peace for everyone. It was a peace for the powerful. The Pax Romana. Yeah, right. Yet, this news of this message of Christ, of Savior, the peace he will bring is what the angel says is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This good news that that will be open for all to enjoy for everyone who will receive this Christ is that there is a Savior that has been born. So the angel uses to calm these shepherds down, to move them out of their fear that you have a savior now, someone who, who will act on behalf of people in order to, to rescue them. And this savior is designated as, as the Christ, meaning the, 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 he's the anointed one, the Messiah who has come from God himself and as God himself in order to regain the rightful rule of God's people. This message, the angel says, should calm the fears of these shepherds. And ours also, friends. This message of a Savior that's been born, who is Christ the Lord, should calm us out of our fears. This time of year, there's, uh, we get to watch all of our, our favorite classic Christmas movies, right? And, and one of those classics is A Charlie Brown Christmas. Who here loves that one? Yeah? Great. Not that many people, but you should watch it. So in The Charlie Brown Christmas, there's a, there's a character named Linus. And, and if you pay attention to the, the world of Charlie Brown, uh, Linus is a very insecure, very fearful child. And he carries around with him at all times a, uh, a security blanket, that little blue blanket that goes with him everywhere that, that provides him a sense of comfort, that provides him a sense of comfort out of his fear. But, but in The Charlie Brown Christmas, if you pay attention, there comes a time where the nativity scene is being told. And Linus tells the story of these shepherds and the angel. And Linus is reciting this story, and, and something really moving happens. He's there on stage, or he's reciting this, this portion of the nativity scene, and he's holding his blanket as always. But the moment that he says what these angels say, do not fear. For I bring to you a message of great joy that will be good news to all the people. For unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Linus takes that little blanket and just drops it. 
Who knew a Charlie Brown Christmas movie could be so profound? (laughs) He lets go of the thing that has provided him comfort for so long. As Linus says that last part of do not fear, he, he drops the blanket and shows that whatever source of false comfort we think we need, in this message of the angels, we can let that go. There is no reason to be afraid any longer. Friends, this Christmas season, what what false sources of, of comfort do you need to let go of? Are there any fears that, that this message of, of great joy can undo for you? In my own personal life, I, I, I jokingly said this last week, but I'm a pretty anxious person in general. And I am convinced today that all of my fears, all of my obsessive, compulsive, disordered tendencies all come back to my failure to reckon with this message, a failure to really receive this as good news for me, as the truth of my life. It says that I have a savior, which means I don't need to to save myself, to protect myself. All of that is misplaced. I I have a Christ. I have a Messiah who intentionally came into the world to come after me, which means that Every fear I have related to to being alone, to being on my own, to to having to figure out my life and move it forward, all of that is nothing. I have a Christ. I have a Messiah. And this Savior, this Messiah, is the Lord. The Lord. The King himself. God himself himself who rules and reigns over all things. He has attached himself to my good, which means every fear of loss, every fear of destruction or sickness or pain or even death itself can, in this message, go out the window. With a God like this, with a Savior like this, who pays such loving attention and performs such loving action toward each and every one of us, we really can obey the call of these angels. Do not fear. So what are you afraid of this Christmas season? What anxiety is gnawing at you in this Christmas season? Where is the, where is the lack of peace? I wonder, friend, What would happen in your heart if you received this sentence as the truth of your life? You have a savior. You have a Christ who's come after you, who is himself the Lord. With a message like that, what is left to fear? Finally, we hear the actual song of the angels. After the announcement of of one angel, a whole host of them show up. A whole host of the heavenly host show up. There is a multitude of angels singing in this song. And what do they sing about? They sing about glory. They sing about the glory of God. Their, Their reaction to everything that's gone on so far in the birth of Christ is to sing about the glory of God. 
It's a wonderful song, and, and it's actually the, the first real song in this series. All the rest have been poems. But, but these people break out, or these angels break out in song. And as I was preparing for this, and as I was reading it through, I, I had to ask this question. Why do the angels feel the need to sing? Why do the angels feel the need to sing? And that, that might seem like a dumb question with an obvious answer, but I, I don't think it is, actually. The message that they have delivered is one of a Savior who will bring salvation. And remember, these are angels, <laughs> which means they have no need of a savior. They are in themselves sinless. And so therefore, they, they, they don't need what Jesus will accomplish. For us, we, we often sing about the glory of God in Christ because God has met our need in Christ, and, and rightly so. We should sing about that glory of God demonstrated in the mercy toward us as sinners. That should cause us to rejoice. But that's not why the angels rejoice. They have no need of the atoning blood of Christ. His mercy is not for them. So other than just being good and proper angels, why do they sing? Why do they sing about the glory of God here? They sing, I think, because they have, for, for all of their time, seen the objective glory of God shining forth. These are angels who have lived in the presence of God, who have seen the glory of God themselves, a glory that, that they themselves can deeply appreciate and praise, even though they have no need of redemption. They sing and they praise because God objectively is worthy of glory. Apart from whatever else he does, these angels don't need redemption, but they still sing because they see the glory of God. You see, for, for us as, as human beings who are tainted by sin and have our hearts clouded by our fallenness, we, we need to be reawakened to the glory of God that is. Which, of course, happens first through the sight of God's grace in Christ. Of course, the, the grace of God demonstrated in Jesus is like an electric shock to our dead hearts, where the sheer beauty of mercy and grace, what God has done, brings us alive again. And as we go on being alive again, the landscape of God's beauty begins to widen. The center of our focus as Christians is, is still all grace, not leaving that behind. Without that, we wouldn't be able to see in the first place. But to grace is added the beauty of God's person. We get to know him. We get to see him. Our, our song as the redeemed starts off because of what God has done for us. And then, I want you to hear me say this, it slowly matures into who God simply is. We are made alive. We are awakened by the grace of God, the, the, the glory of God that we see in his grace, what he's done for us. But as we continue to walk this life as a Christian and the landscape of God's beauty is widened, it should widen into the sheer objective glory of God. 
that certainly loops back around to what he's done for us, but in the end is simply about him, that he's worthy, that he's glorious, that he is good. How would you you describe your view of the, the beauty and glory of God? Have you experienced this beauty? Have you seen... Have you seen the glory of God? Not just for what he's done for you. Yes, hold on to that. Don't don't take that away. But above that, widened from that, just the sheer fact of who God is in his person. Have you seen that beauty? Have you felt that weight? To see God for who he is, because when that happens... There's a redirection of affection that happens. And we see that glory of God simply for who he is. Do you see the glory of God as Trinity? (laughs) That before time itself existed, there has been one God who has eternally existed in three persons in a relationship of reciprocal, glorious love. Love is at the center of our universe because it's at the center of what God has experienced in himself. Do you see that glory in God? Do you see the glory of God's self-existence? That he doesn't need anything. That he exists by himself without any need of anything outside of him. He simply is because he is. Do you see the glory of God in his unchanging nature, that God has no need to change. There's no shadow of turning in him because he never has to turn away. He is perfect. Do you see the glory of God in who he is? Not just what he's done, but in who he is. The glory of God's omniscience, his knowledge that knows everything actually and everything potentially, his his knowledge that makes Elon Musk look like a babbling toddler. The glory of God. Do you see his glory? Do you love him for who he is or only for what he can do for you or even has done for you? Friends, Advent is a wonderful season to realign priorities in order to see this glory. We should let this song of the angels challenge us. Praise God not because they themselves are receiving anything from him, but simply because they see God is worthy. This Advent season is a good time to be challenged by that. To see that God is beautiful within himself and what that should do, even in the chaos of Christmas season, is realign our priorities. To see, to behold to dwell on the glory of God for who he is. If we do that, we can join these angels rejoicing, praising God for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your mercy and grace that that sent Jesus Christ to be born into the world, to be born into obscurity 
for obscure people like us. To be born into humility so that those of us who are low would not feel despised but seen. And I thank you for the message that Jesus Christ in his birth brings, voiced through that angel, that we have no need of fear. We have a Savior, a Christ, who is the Lord. Father, would you help us today where we are fearful or anxious, where peace feels totally absent? Would you help us to know how that message can really bring us comfort? And we can drop false sources of comfort. But above all, what we want is to see your glory. We we praise you. And as Ephesians 2 says, we will continue to praise you into eternity for the immeasurable riches of you, God, and the grace of Christ in your kindness. We will always sing about what you've done for us. But let that be added to singing about who you just are. Don't let us be short-sighted with your glory, only seeing how it benefits us. Let us see you as worthy within yourself and praise you for such. Awaken our hearts, Spirit of God, to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.